This morning, we're continuing a series of sermons that's called, What Even Is the Church? This is part two. I think we'll probably have six or seven parts, something like that. We'll see. Something I want to encourage you in before we really climb into it this morning is I want to encourage you with the reminder that things aren't always as they seem. I was thinking about how this message will hit maybe the visitor or maybe the person that's been here just a few times or maybe even the person that's walked with us for a period of time. And I've recognized that right up front that this message will be offensive to the natural mind. I don't think it's a maybe. I think it's a promise. It will be offensive to the natural mind. But as I prayed in our prayer, we're to be transformed. There's something. This book is to sort of re-engineer a different sort of mind, something that doesn't come naturally for anyone. So given that, you can be encouraged if you're offended. (laughs) I'm trying to prepare you. You can be encouraged if you're offended, but yet you're like, uh, in some weird way, I'm offended by this reality, but I want more. If you're like, man, I'm out of here. I've heard enough. I, I, I'm okay if, if that's in regards to the church. But if it's in regards to the truth that's about to be exposed, I give you a strong caution before you even hear it because you're going to hear gobs of Scripture this morning. Gobs. It's going to be offensive to the natural mind. Things aren't always as they seem. The gospel doesn't operate as it seems. What seems like it ought to work is the nice people go to heaven, the bad people go to hell, right? But if you've been around the gospel long enough, you know that no one's righteous. No, not one. (laughs) If we're going to talk about fairness, then there is no heaven for anybody. We're born in sin and conceived in iniquity. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Things aren't always as they seem, so that's what I want to prepare you for this morning. We're dealing with the question, what is the church? seems like an obvious question with an obvious answer, but it's not. Here's a few, just briefly, reasons that it needs to be lovingly asked and biblically answered. First of all, our cities are full of them, especially in the South. The average is 15 churches per 10,000 people in the South. And in Greenville, it's 94 Christian churches serving 25,000 people. So even in the Bible Belt South, the Greenville still takes the cake as a pretty highly saturated church environment. So the fact that we have lots of churches in this community is a good reason for us to ask and answer the question, what even is the church? The fact that anybody can rent a building, go out in their shed with a saw, cut a couple pieces of wood and glue them together and call it a cross, can get online and get ordained in about 15 minutes, just make sure you spell your name right on the online form and provide factual information. And the fact that we can call that a church means that we need to know what it is so we know what church isn't, too. Our churches are full of them. We need to understand what's around us. Secondly, with no clear expression of what the church is, typically, it can become whatever we want it to be. We can have Facebook church. I got a few folks that I kind of hang out with on Facebook, and they're Christians, too, and that's my church. Our church can become, I go to the woods with my family. That's where I have church, just me and God and nature. Since church isn't really clearly defined, or it hasn't been, we can get away with that. Or we could just hang out with a few Christian parents and call that our our church. Or we can sing with a bunch of other Christians at a ball game and call that church. That's not church. 
That's a bunch of Christians singing at a ball game. It's good, but it's not the church. With no clear expression, it needs to be expressed. So we're going to spend the next few weeks. Another reason is because Brad preached recently about missions being planting the church, ministry being an outgrowth of that planted church. If we're going to plant the church, first of all, we need to know what we're planting. We need six or seven weeks at least to try and engage. What does the Bible say needs to be planted there? Can we just have some dude get a building, get an online ordination in 15 minutes and get a cross and call that a church? Or does there need to be something more? We also need to know what the church is so we can try and determine, is there an area where the church is absent or weak? We need to know what our Bible says about what the church is before we can diagnose where to even plant a church. Last week we considered, first of all, that church is a people. It's not a place you go. It's not a thing that you do. It's not an activity on your schedule. It is a people. It's not a collection of individuals. It's more like an organism, like where things fit and work together, where they're actually grotesque if they're by themselves, like a dismembered hand laying on your den floor. If you get home today after corporate worship and you walk in there, your response is probably going to be, oh, gross. Call the police. Something's not right. And that's what I'm thinking when I see a Christian that wants to operate independently from the church or someone who's professing Christ. Gross. Call the police. There's a dismembered hand trying to function on its own. We're members of a people. We're part of a body that's living and engaging. And that's what we considered last week. I had a, some interesting responses. I had some folks that really said, man, I needed that. And other folks that said, hmm, it sounded like the message was sort of um, create a bunch of clones. I said, oh, no, I don't have that problem. I've, in six years, I've never had to sit down with somebody and say, you know what? You're too much a part of the body. <laughs> Would you just ease out of this a little bit? You've lost yourself in the people of God. I've never once had anything even close, but I've begged people week by week by week, engage the people of God because you're trying to function as a dismembered hand, and it's ugly. I've never had that problem, so we're not looking for clones. Shop at your boutiques, but man, the point is about the church is there's supposed to be a bunch of crucified worshipers who no longer live but Christ in you. That's what this thing is supposed to be, a people of God. Secondly, the church is an accountable people. That's where we're going this morning. That's why I've been so nervous about this, because we are an accountable people. What I want to do this morning, I want to give you a little bit of map, a little map of where we're going. First of all, I want to deal with the reality that what, one, what happens to one happens to all. Let me rephrase that. What happens to one impacts all. I want to establish that biblically to show you that we are an accountable people. Secondly, I want to show you what we do about it. That there is a recourse. There is some action that we take. Third, I want to show you how we do it. And then last, I want to show you the spirit of what we're doing. Okay, let's start with what happens to one impacts all when you're a people. Turn to Joshua chapter 7. What happens to one impacts all. give you a little bit of context. <clears throat> Let me also tell you that I just really want you to be comfortable this morning. I mean, like physically comfortable. So I like get, get comfortable because we're going to have a, 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 like a 10 course meal. 
and it's going to be gobs of truth. You'll need your Bible. I'll give you page numbers for your pew Bibles. If you didn't bring yours or you don't know yours that well, that's okay. Nobody will mock you. You can grab that blue one in the seat back in front of you, and I'll give you the page numbers for where I'm going. First page number is page 182 toward the front of your Bible, the book of Joshua. Bird's eye view of this context. Nation of Israel has been liberated from Egypt. They've been in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. They've had the Passover, the plagues, and the Passover being the final one. They've crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. They've gone into the wilderness and wandered around the wilderness for 40 years. They got the Ten Commandments. Moses is leading them. They come to Mount Nebo. Moses had, now the, the nation of Israel has grumbled. So the whole first generation that led them out of Egypt will die, not going into the promised land. Moses comes up on Nebo, looks over into the promised land, scopes it out, and then he dies after the book of Deuteronomy is written. Okay, so that's the context. The nation of Israel now goes into the promised land. They cross the Jordan on dry ground. And then they start, at least initially, start whipping some behind. It starts with them fitting the battle of Jericho. I like to say that, fit. I don't know what that means, but that, it's a southern version of fought. All right, chapter 6. I'm going to start there. And you can follow along with me if you can, or you can just sit and listen. I'm going to tell a story. The city that's all, and all that's within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. They're talking about Jericho. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in the house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. This is the first city they're going to take as they've, as they've entered the promised land. It's going to be Jericho. And God tells them via Joshua, But you keep yourselves from the devoted things, those things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted... When you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go in the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted. You know the story. And the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. So that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. You know the rest of the story. They devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, donkeys, with the edge of the sword. Cool. But the problem begins in chapter 7, verse 1. But the people who fought this battle, who fit it, the people who fought this battle, the people, pay attention to people, the language that's used here, the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. What? I thought it just said that the women and men, young and old, oxen, sheep, donkeys with the edge of the sword were destroyed. Sword. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things for one dude, a dude named Achan. Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. He took some of those things that were to go into the temple treasury. He took them and he hid them in the floor of his tent. I guess he dug a hole or something. And the anger of the Lord burned against who? It burned against the people of Israel. Now, so Joshua, at this point, they whipped Jericho. Joshua doesn't know that Achan did this. Nobody else knows it. In fact, maybe somebody else in Achan's family. But we know for sure Achan knows. Meanwhile, Joshua's like, oh, man, we whipped Jericho. Who's next? Oh, there's Ai. Spelt Ai. That's the way we're going to say it. Ai. You could say A, but we'll call it Ai. Joshua says, look, there's Ai. That's like, uh, Ai is small. Look at here what, what happens. They sent a, uh, uh, some dudes to go spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, 
Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men went up, or went up there from the people. So they sent out a little spy team, a little recon team to go check out Ai. And they're like, man, Ai is like Quinlan. Let's just send kind of a small group to go whip them. Not picking on Quinlan. I'm just saying it's smaller than Greenville. Let's just go whip Quinlan. So they sent about 3,000 up from there, and they fled before the men of Quinlan. 3,000 dudes fled before the men of Ai, and the men of Ai, listen, killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. You can imagine how this would feel. If you blew the trumpet at Jericho, and you broke the pot. Is that maybe mixing stories? You blew the trumpet and shouted. Yeah, Gideon's story. I mean, you see the walls come crashing down. You were one that helped fit the battle of Jericho. And now Quinlan is whipping you. You're going, man, what? what? God, you're doing a little switcheroo on us. What is up here? Our hearts are melting. Especially imagine the kids and the wife of one of those 36 who died. Man, my heart's melting. I just lost my daddy. My heart is melting. I just lost my husband. And then Joshua tore his clothes. He fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. We should have just stayed there if you're going to let AI whip us. Oh, Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land are going to hear about AI whipping us, and they're going to surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? And the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Listen to the words. He says, Israel has sinned. Who took the devoted things? A man named Achan. One dude. Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. I thought it was just Achan. No, it's they. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own possessions. Therefore, who? The people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before the enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people, and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God, God of Israel, These are, There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. So God told Joshua, have the family, the tribes come by, tribe by tribe. Have families come by, family by family. Have individuals come by, individual by individual, family leaders. And here comes Achan. He says, the household that the Lord takes shall come near by man. And he, he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire. He and all that he has because he's transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he's done an outrageous thing in Israel. So Joseph did what he told him. He marched him by tribe by tribe, family by family. 
And Achan comes before him. Achan answered Joshua. He says, truly, Josh, I've sinned against the Lord God of Israel. Verse 20. And this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar. You know those Shinar, those cloaks from Shinar, don't you, Joshua? They're so fine. I saw that cloak from Shinar, and I just had to have it. And the 20 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. And I coveted them. And I took them, and see, they're hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. Joshua sends messengers over to Achan's tent, and sure enough, he finds them there in the ground. And Joshua and all Israel took him, Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold, and his sons and daughters, and his oxen, listen, and his donkeys, and his sheep, and his tent, and all that he had, and they brought them to the valley of Achor. Achor means the valley of trouble. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. Did you hear that? Why did you bring trouble on us? What you did and what you do impacts the people of God. So all of Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. I have to confess to you, for years, I didn't want my new believer friends to read that story. Like, Man, I don't want you to read about my God there because he really had a bad day. I mean, that's, that's kind of a, seems almost unfair it seems like it's not really as, as loving as I would hope my God would be. 36 men die. Husbands likely, fathers die because of this one dude's sin. And then Achan's whole family dies. His wife, his children, his sheep, his oxen, his tent is even burned. It doesn't seem like it's fair. But when you realize that God handles things in terms of a people... What happens to one impacts all the people. Then you begin to understand God's character. And at first, you might be a little bit apologetic, but I'm going to show you in a minute here why we can really embrace it. Turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter, chapter 5, verse 18, page 942 of your pew Bible or your ESV. Man, I want to show you how beautiful this is. At first blush, you're like, I hope my new believer friends don't read about God on that time when Achan sinned. Doesn't seem fair. Romans chapter 5, verse 18 says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. If you've read Romans some, you know that that's pointing toward the gospel and pointing toward what Christ has redeemed and what Christ has restored and what Christ has fixed. But first you have to understand what was lost, what was lost in the garden. This is speaking of the original fall. What one trespass, taking of fruit from a tree that one man and his wife were not to eat, led condemnation for all men. Death came to the entire world through one man. That's why we can call him our, our federal daddy. I don't need Adam to be guilty because I'm guilty on my own. But even somehow if I weren't, I'm guilty already in Adam. That's why David could say, I was born in sin, conceived 
in iniquity. Because our relationship to this dude, Adam, he is our federal daddy. We are guilty in Adam, and God is viewing all humanity as receiving the consequences for the sin of this one man and his wife, Adam and Eve. What happens to one impacts all. But let me read the rest of the verse, and it's going to minister to you. If, let me prepare you. If it's sort of unsavory to you, and you're like, man, I kind of don't like that. I don't kind of like the way God does that. Look at the next part of this verse. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. If you don't like God handling people in terms of one sin impacting the many, then you can't like the fact that through this righteousness of one man that that impacts the many. Man, you can't take one without the other. We're engaging the reality that the sin of one person impacts the many, but in the case of the gospel, the righteousness of one man impacts the many. And thankfully, God doesn't view us through our own righteousness or lack thereof. He views us through the righteousness of another. So the very thing that may be unsavory to you is the very thing that's the beauty of the gospel. Be thankful for God's view of a people in terms of corporate judgment and corporate blessing because we're swimming in it right now as we're bathed in the righteous work of another. Now, I want to take you back to Joshua chapter 22. Don't turn there. I want to read a passage to you. I'm taking you back to the point. That what happens to one impacts all when you're a people. Later on in the story of taking the promised land, they've uh, by this point divvied up who gets what part of the land. And there's this one point where the, the, tri- the people of Reuben and the tribe of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh want to camp out in one area and they actually set up an altar. And the nation of Israel is fearful that they're setting up an altar to another God. So they appeal to them with these words. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of the devoted things? Hey, you Israelites who are building your own um, altar, didn't Achan do his own thing and break faith with the matter of the devoted things? And the wrath fell on the, all the congregation of Israel, and he did not perish alone for his iniquity. That's what he says. He did not perish alone for his iniquity. The thing that I want you to see in Achan's sin is that no one is an island. You think your sin is private and that it only impacts you? Guess what? It impacts all of us. It impacts every single one of us. No one is an island. Your sin impacts me and mine impacts you. Now turn to Revelation. Revelation chapter 2. Chapters 2 and 3 are a collection of letters that are written to churches. For my study of Revelation, what this appears to be is churches that... A big part of Revelation is foretelling, I believe. Um, I have a humility in my, my understanding of Revelation. But one thing that seems very clear is the letters that are written to seven churches here in chapters 2 and 3 were real churches. Real people. He gives specific names of people in these churches. And God is writing these letters to the the angels of these churches. There's no other biblical picture of an angel floating around like the cross point angel. 
There's no other biblical picture of that. The word for angel there would be messenger. And what this seems to be is these letters are written to the leaders or the messengers in these churches. Let me show you two churches briefly. First, Pergamum, chapter 2, verse 12. And to the angel or the messenger or the leadership of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know, this is Christ speaking to the church at Pergamum. I know Pergamum fellowship, first FBC Pergamum. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. You hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. This guy was martyred. He was killed among you where Satan dwells. But, you guys, I know you're faithful. I know Antipas hung in there to the very end. But a few things I have against you. Now, remember, he's writing to the leadership. A few things I have against you. It's very personal to me because I can imagine being an elder in this church, in this church here in Pergamum. I can imagine if the Lord were to write us a letter right now, what few things he might have against Ben McGraw and Brad Cardwell and Steve Roberts that we are not dealing with or we have not dealt with properly. This letter has gravity for me. It's very personal for me. He says, a few things I have against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. This is, if you want to read about this story, Balaam and Balak, it's Numbers chapter 22 through chapter 24. Just on your own time. I can't go there this morning. Basically what Balaam did, or the teaching of Balaam, it just follows in these next few sentences. Who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have, you, you leaders, you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. It's believed that the Nicolaitans taught that you could be friends of Rome and be friends of the world. So you could actually pray to Caesar maybe as long as you had your fingers crossed behind your back and you didn't really mean it because you wouldn't want to be an offensive to the Roman citizens because you're trying to share the gospel with them, right? You wouldn't want them to be offended while you don't pray to Caesar. He says, you've got these Balaamites and you've got these Nicolaitans in your church and I have this against you, therefore repent. And that term there, who he's engaging there, is he's engaging that messenger that he addressed in the first place. You, messenger, you leader of the church, you repent. You repent for not reckoning with those Balaamites who are putting stumbling blocks in front of people, who are introducing sexual immorality among the people, who are not dealing with the Nicolaitans, who are suggesting you can be friends with the world and friends with God. You need to repent. And if not, I will come to you soon, Ben McGraw, Steve Roberts, Brad Cardwell, whoever the elders might be here in Pergamum. I'm going to come to you soon, and I'm going to war with them with the sword of my mouth. I'm glad to see the them. <laughs> really. Because if the Lord were to write us a letter right now, I wouldn't want him to come to me and do war with anybody, but especially not me if you're the one sinning. But the reality is he's coming to me. And when there's war among the people of God, there's going to be fallout. There's going to be shrapnel. There's going to be heartache. So I don't want him to do war with anybody. But the reality is here, he's saying, I'm coming to do war with these who have disobeyed me. 
the Balaamites and the Nicolaitans, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I don't want war in the church. And I suspect that the elders of Pergamum didn't want war in their church, so I hope they heeded their letter and dealt with the Nicolaitans and the Balaamites because the sin of one impacts the many. Look at the next letter. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, Thyatira, your love and your faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. In other, wor- in other words, I see improvement. That's good, Thyatira. Well done. He says, but I have this against you, against the elders of Thyatira, against the leaders of this church. I have this against you that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Sounds like a Balaamite. Jesus says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her on her sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you as your works deserve. Now, that last part clearly communicates that you will be, you are responsible for your own sin. But see the corporate impact here. Jesus says, I'm going to come to you and I'm going to reckon with them. I have this against you as a church and against you as a leadership. While Jezebel and her followers are accountable, her sin impacts everyone in the church. I want to show you probably the ugliest picture of that. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. An accountable people. It means that when one person sins, it impacts everybody. This is probably the ugliest account of one person's sin impacting everybody. It's gruesome. It's on page 954. Chapter 5, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. He says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And not just any old sexual immorality, but some ugly stuff. And of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans. Even non-believers are going to say, man, that's rancid. That's ugly. For a man has his father's wife. Now, we don't know if that's incest or if that's a stepmother or whatever the case. It's ugly. This young man is sleeping with his mother or stepmother. And he says, and you are arrogant. Ought you not, you Corinthians, ought you not rather mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. And it may be saved. And it may, may, may be saved. But your boasting is not good, Corinthians. You, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Leaven is what they used in bread. It's sort of like yeast. Those of you who pass around friendship bread, you know what I'm talking about? When somebody gives you a little, little uh, 
Ziploc full of friendship bread, and your husband walks in, and I walk in and say, baby, what in the world is that? That's some nasty-looking stuff. The reason you got to dip some out of that and pass it on is because it's got a yeast, a yeast that's all part of the mix. That's a picture here where he's saying, man, a little bit of sin leavens, infiltrates, impacts the entire lump of bread. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you are really unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. That should be the character of the people of God. An unleavened, sincere, true people. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. Or you wouldn't be like Jesus. I wrote to you not to associate with sexually immoral people who are in the church. Not talking about unbelievers. Because I want you to be Christ-like taking the message to a bunch of people who don't know Christ. And of course they're sexually immoral. But we're talking about those in the church. Not at all meaning the sexual immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. You hear this? If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. I read that passage because I want you to see the impact of the sin-practicing, defiant, unrepentant sinner on the church. First of all, they're getting a rebuke from the guy who's planted them. Imagine if the Lord calls me somewhere 10 years from now, and many of you are still here. And me and the other elders were part of this plant. And I write you a letter back because I've heard about sin in your camp. How heartbroken you'd be. That's what's happening here. Paul is writing this letter saying, man, you've got a sin-practicing, defiant, unrepentant person in the body, and you're doing nothing about it, and this leaven is infiltrating the entire lump. I want to read a passage to you. I don't, you can jot it down, but since I'm there, I want to show it to you real quickly. We're going to come back to it later. Hebrews chapter 12. Listen to this. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Have any of y'all ever been in a church where a root of bitterness sprung up? Do you know what I'm talking about? I see smiles and nods because you all know what I'm talking about. Some of you are entertaining a root of bitterness right now. You didn't take the Lord's Supper last week, and you won't take it this week either. Because you love bitterness more than you love eating and dining with God and his people. See to it that a root of bitterness doesn't spring up and cause trouble. And by it, many will become defiled. Do you see that? The impact of one root of bitterness can impact the entire body. What happens to one person impacts all. That's what happens when you're a people. If you were a bunch of individuals, it wouldn't happen. But the fact that we're a people and we're members of one another, engage with one another, this is what happens. So what do we do about it? 
First of all, Genesis chapter 4. I'm going to turn there quick. If you want to turn there, you can. It's, not, it's a story that's pretty familiar. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. That's the first kid that's ever been born. You can just imagine her surprise. I've gotten a man. The, the New American Standard says, I got a man child. Bing, look at there. They bore Cain. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Cain just kind of threw a little $10 bill in the plate. There you go, God. I'll pacify you. Cain had, or God had no regard for Cain's offering. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? You know I'm not going to be mocked. I'm not a chump. I know the heart of your worship when you throw a $10 bill and put it in the offering plate. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, where's Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Familiar passage? Familiar phrase? What? Am I my brother's keeper? I want you to realize that those words, that is the world's philosophy. This is the magnum opus for leave me alone and stay out of my business. What, am I my brother's keeper? That came from a murderer who's also a liar. That's the philosophy of the world, but that's not the way the people of God operate because we are our brother's keepers. In the church, we are our brother's keepers despite the testimony of a lying murderer. Let me show you this. Turn to Luke chapter 6. Maybe this is the magnum opus. We'll have to see. Luke chapter 6, page 863. We're dealing with what do we do about sin in the camp? What do we do about sin among the people of God? If we agree that sin impacts all, and if we agree that God's not happy with that, what do we do about it? This is what we do about it. Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 37. I think this may be the magnum opus, this verse right here, this standalone verse. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put in your lap. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. Maybe that's the main idea of the world. That, man, don't judge me. Are you going to be judged too? What I want you to appreciate, I've shared this principle before, the principle of the GPS. The GPS works on at least three satellites. If it doesn't have three satellites, it won't give you a reading. And I'll tell you why. Because the GPS triangulates. It gets three satellites that are out in space, and they give a reading. And they kind of create this triangle effect from these three different directions that give you a good, precise reading on where you are. A GPS won't even give you a reading unless it's got those three satellites to consult Because if it just has one satellite, you could be anywhere on a line. You could be thousands of miles away from where you think you want to be. Because you're just on that line. You might be on the right trajectory, 
but you're on the wrong longitude, longitude or something. And that can be true of a single passage of Scripture. We don't build a theology on one verse of Scripture. While one passage is completely true, it does not reveal the truth completely. So while this passage is completely true, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. We've got to take it in context with the rest of the passage to understand it. We've got to gather some more satellites and their neighboring satellites. They're right next to it. Keep reading. He told them a parable. We're going to get the context of this passage. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he's fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take the speck that's in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that's in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck that's in your brother's eye. Man, this passage is so misunderstood. If you take that single satellite by itself, judge, lest you be, judge not lest you be judged, then man, it's hands off. We're not our brother's keeper. You should mind your own business. You don't meddle. We can all use, think of terms that come up. But this passage in context helps us understand that we are about the speck removal business because there's something bigger at stake. Instead of this saying, don't judge absolutely in any case, it's actually teaching, how do you judge? How do we handle judgment in the body? You remember Paul saying, we don't judge those outside of the church. Of course we judge inside the church. We are about the work of speck removal inside the church. Notice that he says at the end, he says, then go and take the speck out of your brother's eye once you have the log removed out of yours. So the speck is something that needs to be dealt with. The speck is a picture of some sort of sin that needs to be confronted, brother to brother, sister to brother, husband to wife, wife to husband. The log is like a picture of a beam. It's like a, 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 a characterization of this God, I don't care what you think. I'm going to do it my way thing. And this thing's sticking out of your eye where you can't even see to take a speck out of someone else's eye. But just like this dude needs somebody to help him with the speck, how much does the guy with the log need to help him with the log? He needs like an army. And that army's called the church. It's called the loving people of God who love them like a brother and a sister and said, bro, you got a log sticking out of your eye. Let me help you with that. So then we can be about the sweet but difficult work of speck removal. We are to remove the specks and the logs from each other's eyes. I'll show you why here in a moment. The next passage is a passage we've looked at. 1 Corinthians 5. If you want to turn there, you can. I just want to draw out the points here that he makes. What we do with this sinful man... The first one was, what do we do? Is we keep, we keep our brother despite what the lying murderer says. The second is we remove logs and specks. Here's the third thing. Chapter 5, verse 2. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. You're to remove the wicked, unrepentant man or woman from among you. He gives more details in chapter 5. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Chapter 5, verse 5, or excuse me, verse 11. 
Don't associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. You want to know what to do with that unrepentant? I don't care what you think, God. I'm doing it my way, sinner in the church. This is a great picture. Remove that man from among you. Don't even eat with him. Don't even associate with him. We're not talking about lost people. We're talking about people that profess Christ, yet they're living like they're lost. And they're living just like the rest of the world. And then in verse 13, purge the evil person from among you. The next passage is Titus chapter 3, verse 10. As for a person who stirs up division, anybody ever been in a church that's been divided? Anybody? Just me? Now, I know you know what I'm talking about. If we're talking about what the church is, we've got to deal with this. It's hard stuff. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him, you could say her too. After warning him or her once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him or her. Connect it with the other one. Treat him like a tax collector and sinner. As one who professes Christ but doesn't live like it. Have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He or she is self-condemned. So what do we do about sin among the people of God? We keep our brother first. We remove logs and specks. We remove the wicked and evil from among us. And we reject the divisive one after warning him or her. And let me tell you why we do all this. Colossians chapter 1 verse 28. I told you it's God's scripture today. There's just too much opportunity for you to misunderstand. I just want you to see my source. If some of y'all are hearing this this morning, you're going, man, I've never heard any of this. Then you hadn't read your Bible. And I'm saying it lovingly because six years ago, I'd have been like, I hadn't heard any of this, man. This sounds really hard. But I've read a lot of my Bible since then. I've preached a lot of it since then. And there's this body of evidence that hopefully makes for a renewed, transformed people who, again, are not like the natural mind. Now, here's why we're about this work. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. Paul says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone. You could hear rebuking. You could hear confronting. You could hear engaging, speck-removing with everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. And here's why we do all that, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The point I want you to see there is that we submit to searchability and accountability because of what's at stake. What's at stake is the beauty of the bride. Forget you. You're like, man, that's going to hurt my feelings. I'm sorry. It hurts my feelings to be on the receiving end of it. And I've been on the receiving end of it plenty in the last six years. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about the beauty of the bride when Christ comes back. Is she going to be a hung, homely, nasty thing? Or is she going to be fine and shiny and pure and beautiful? Because we've been about this really hard, difficult work. Because we've done these things, keeping our brother, removing the logs and specks, removing the wicked and evil from among us, rejecting the divisive one after warning him or her. Because we've been eager to be searched. I want to be searched because of what's at stake. 
If I'm scoping out porn on the internet, do I want a bunch of men in my face? Do you want a bunch of men in my face saying, bro, what are you doing? I hope you do. Because if there are a bunch of men in my face, does it impact you? It impacts this church. It impacts the sermons. It impacts my family. And guess what? It's not just because I'm a preacher. You're the hearer. You think it doesn't impact you? I want men in men's trash. I want women walking with women because of what's at stake, the beauty of the bride. I want us asking each other hard questions because this is not a club. This is an organism that's subject to virus and cancer and sickness and skankiness. You can get ugly. This bride can be ugly. But I want her to be beautiful. If the Lord were to write us a letter right now, I want it to be, man, you're keeping the faith. I don't want him to have anything against us. We keep our brother. We remove the logs and specks. We remove the wicked and evil and divisive from among us. But the character and the tone of all of these is humility and searchability. The character of all these things is humility and searchability. The character of speck removal has got to be serious self-examination. I've called it among the elders before, I've called it violent searchability. I've got two guys that can look me in the eyes and ask me anything. And two guys who have. I've got a wife that does the same thing with me. We've had three or four conversations in the last couple of weeks where she's kind of given me a little tune-up. You know? And my first response is, hey, man, you, you don't realize I'm God's gift to husbanding and fathering. I don't need the tune-up. But then I'm thinking about it later. I'm like, you know, you're right. And I've told her as much. I'm so thankful for her. She's not about the business of tuning me up. But she cares enough about me and she cares enough about what's at stake. And we've got to have this attitude of searchability and self-examination. Violent searchability. And for some of you, it's going to be your wives. Some of you, it's going to be your husbands. For all of us, it should be our friends who we're walking with. Who, who care enough to tell us, man. Dude, you got, you got some problems right now. You're playing in the street. God, man, you got really bad breath. You know a good friend will tell you when you got bad breath. Man, you are pushing the envelope right here, bro. We need those sort of relationships in our lives because of what's at stake. It's about the beauty of the bride. She could be homely and ugly. Or she could be beautiful because we've done this really hard uncultural, maybe even unchristian cultural work because we're accountable because one happens to one happens to impacts all. So how do we do it? If we are to keep our brother, if we are to remove logs and specks, if we're to remove the wicked and evil from among us, if we're to reject the divisive one after warning him or her, if we're to submit to searchability and accountability because of what's at stake, how are we to do it? Turn to Matthew chapter 18. The first thing while you're turning there is not from this passage. It's from something that's going to come up, a sermon here, here probably in the next couple of weeks. It's from engaging the exposed word week by week. That is a tool that God uses for accountability. 
And when I say engaging it, I mean more than just listening attentively and maybe even taking notes. When I say engaging it, I mean something looks like this. Two dudes meet for lunch at Cracker Barrel and, or Chick-fil-A, wherever, and one asks the other, said, hey man, what'd you do with Sunday's message? What, what it would likely be is, what do you mean? I was there. I mean, what'd you do with it? What'd I do with it? I, I don't know. I mean, I was there. Now, has it run you through? Is it disassembling you? Is it transforming your mind in some way? Are you different today than you were on Saturday? Is something happening to your life that's a reflection that you actually heard and obeyed it? That's what I'm talking about, that sort of engagement. How do we hold each other accountable? It looks just like that. It's going to be born in routine, mundane times. Two dudes talking in neighboring cubicles. Hey, man, what that message do to you on Sunday? Oh, man, it wrecked me. How? Oh, man, I feel like I have a lower view of myself today. I mean, I'm just thinking, for example, depends on the message. That's how we hold each other accountable. This weekly message hurts us and it heals us. This weekly message disassembles us, but it also reassembles us. And when I say it hurts us, I'm talking about that natural mind that's so offended right now. I'm talking about that natural plan that says, no, I'm going to do it this way. That's being so offended right now. That's being so assaulted right now. The weekly message disassembles and reassembles. It crucifies and raises again every week. That's the beauty of the weekly message. We first hold each other accountable with the words, what are you doing with God's word for his people? That's the first place. The second place is a place of church discipline, an often misunderstood and seldom even exercised biblical picture. Starting in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Let me just interject something right here. That's the first steps of church discipline. When I say church discipline, some of y'all that have heard about it, you're like, oh. That's the first step, man. That's, that's like a husband. That's like Christy going to me saying, hey, you're really distracted this week. Can you engage the kids some? I'm like, yeah, I guess. At first, I'm like, oh, how dare you? But then later, I'm like, oh, yeah, you're right. And I need to do that. That's, isn't that beautiful? Isn't that harmless? It's so private and it's so easy at the first stages. It's just you and your brother. I, I can't tell you how, time, how many times I have somebody come to me and said, Hey, man, let me tell you something. Let me tell you about what so-and-so said to me or did to me. What do you think I ought to do? I'm like, well, you want me to go to them? Why don't you go to them? Why don't you do what Matthew 18 says? And you and your brother can be restored. It's hard to come to a brother and say, Hey, man, you hurt my feelings. Guys can do this. I, I'll come back to this in a minute. I'll come back to that specifically. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Jesus provides a really neat guide for accountability in the church. He only talks about specifically the church and mentions the church twice. And in both accounts, he talks about loosing and binding, that the church looses and binds. 
And here he gives a pretty detailed guide to accountability. First of all, it's progressively public. At first, it's just two people, maybe over lunch. And then it's three people, maybe three or four people. And then it's the church. It becomes pro progressively public. And I'm going to tell you and promise you right now, it becomes progressively difficult. It's the hardest thing I've ever done, ever, ever, especially at the, the higher levels. And it becomes progressively grave. That's reflected in the wording. What's loosed on earth is loosed in heaven. What's bound on earth is bound in heaven. If you've ever been to a wedding where you hear a man, an ordained minister, say what God has joined together, let no man separate. I want you to appreciate that's an example of binding. What is bound on earth is recognized in the high courts of heaven. Those two people are married. And it's with the same gravity when the church says, you are not of us anymore. You go out from us. We are not to eat with you. We are not to associate with you anymore. That's recognized in the high court of heaven. Man, that's some serious gravity to it. So daily and common and easy and sweet at the initial levels. It really is. It's beautiful. We can keep a real short account with each other. A husband and wife or two friends. Jeff Ott is one that does this with me every now and again. He'll say, hey man, are we okay? Sound like, kind of like a husband and wife, you know. Hey babe, are we okay? With me and Jeff, we got to say those sort of things when we're out pig hunting or something. Or riding manly four-wheel drives around. Hey man, are we okay? Yeah bro, we're okay. But sometimes we're not. Sometimes one of us has offended another. And man, we can keep a short account with each other. That's beautiful church discipline. That's accountability. That's a, shooting straight with each other and being truthful and honest. This thing, this church discipline thing, escalates as the heart hardens and it grows more and more unrepentant. And it grows uglier and uglier and more heartbreaking and more heartbreaking. Sort of like Saul carrying around his spear everywhere by the end of 1 Samuel where he wants to poke everybody because he's huge in his own eyes. How dare anybody confront me about anything? That's what it looks like. It's ugly when people are throwing spears. Lastly, I want to address the spirit of it, and this will be brief. The spirit of this whole thing, this accountability thing, I know I've shared some thoughts this morning that are very hard notions and very hard truths. Man, I told Christy over breakfast, I said, you know what, babe, there's going to be some people there that are there for the first time. And they're going to be like, man, these jokers are serious, and I'm out of here. Or they're going to be like, man, they're eating their Bibles. And they're going to do it whatever the cost. I hope it's the latter. I told someone this morning, I said, it's going to be, hopefully, I think it'll be a polar response. It will be either be, I'm running from this, or this is scary, but I want more of it. Because I see it in passage after passage after passage after passage. This, these realities of discipline and accountability they fly in the face of individual me and God Christianity. They do. If you view this Christian walk as just you and God, man, I got no keepers. I got nobody that can look and examine me. Who are you to call me divisive, in fact? It's just between me and God. And me and God are square. This flies in the face of private individual me and God Christianity. It definitely flies in the face of the world. Am I my brother's keeper? Sort of thought. But accountability and discipline are blessings that we need.
I'm going to end this morning with a passage from Hebrews. It's beautiful. This is the tone of this whole thing. If you're hearing this for the first time from a church or you're hearing this from the first time from this church, my burden is that this is the tone and the attitude of this accountability and discipline among the people of God. Listen to this just amazing passage. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider this Christ who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And here's where he's talking about being weary and faint-hearted. It's not just about, man, money is hard these days. Ooh, it's hard to keep my job. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the next verse. He's talking about discipline. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. He's talking about the purity of the bride right here. Don't grow weary in this sort of journey, this hard journey together. He says, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. That's what he's talking about here. He's not talking about getting you through Friday. He's talking about getting you through a time where someone sits down with you over lunch and says, Brother, you got a speck I need to help you with. He's talking about enduring those sort of really hard times with each other where you're searchable. Really hard times where I've got a Steve Roberts or a Brad Cardwell. Steve, I'm going to tell you, give you a real personal, specific example. Some of y'all that have been here for years, you know there have been times where I've been pretty brutal from the pulpit. Harsh. That brother right there, is taking, God has used him to take some edges off me. I'm thankful for him. That wouldn't happen unless we had that sort of relationship. And it's for your benefit. See, it impacts everybody whenever we're that searchable with each other. I'm thankful for that brother because he was willing to shoot straight with me on some hard topics. It's for your discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. If it's off limits for somebody to come to you and say, Hey, bro, you got a speck. Oh, no, how dare ye? If that's off limits, this says you're not even one of his. Do you realize that? The people of God are characterized by this searchability and this approachability. Please confront me in my sin. I need this. As someone who is, is, is one of his sons, I need to be disciplined. Besides this, we had earthly fathers who disciplined us and, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But God disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. Man, that's the motive of this thing. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. 
I can tell you, having been on the receiving end of it at kind of lower levels, it's painful. There are other people in this church who have been on it on the higher levels, and they'll tell you it's the most painful thing they've ever been through. But God used it for his own glory. He used it to beautify the bride, to refine her and purify her. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. You hear that word trained? That's a hard word. It sounds like it's a practice. It sounds like we should be about this work with each other. It's training. And it's hard. A church without accountability and discipline, I'm going to tell you right now, is a church without judgment. A person without accountability is a person awaiting judgment. A family without accountability is a family awaiting judgment. My experience in the last six years is that most people like the idea of it until they're looking down the barrel of it. I know how that feels. I've looked down the barrel of it enough times. No, it's no fun. But I'm thankful for what God has used it for in my life. I'm thankful for what he's done with it. A small few actually embrace a sort of painful searchability because I believe they have a view to what's at stake. If we stray, we want somebody in our grill. Trust me, we do. We want people that we know love us, people that we know love the Lord, lovingly in our grill. And you can do that. Trust me. You can be lovingly confrontational. It's hard and it's difficult. And you know, frankly, it seems to lack grace, but that's because we have a really, really poor view on grace. Grace is not a license to just live in this place of perpetual sin and do whatever you want. Grace is actually this covering over us while we're on this journey of faith and looking more like Christ and being beautified as a bride. It's this covering that protects us. Let me pray. Lord, this... um, This message, I just pray, I know it's been a handful. It's been a mouthful. I hope it's been been and will be a heartful. Lord, I pray the result of this in this church will be that it'll be a bunch of people that actually embrace searchability and people that actually run to searchability who recognize that we have not arrived, to recognize that we have not that you're not finished with your work in us and that we need each other to be about this work of sanctification. Lord, we recognize that you look at us in terms of a people and that the sin of one impacts the many. And Lord, we understand that now and we appreciate that through the righteousness of one that the many are found righteous and reckoned justified. Lord, we just bathe in that blood of that finished work. We are thankful for that Jesus in these next few minutes as we take the supper together. We remember that work and we count it perfect. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. These next couple minutes we're going to enjoy what the church does together. We've done a couple of those things. Well, one of these, those things this morning already in baptism. Uh, baptism and Lord's Supper are a couple of things the church does. So the Lord's Supper is our next uh, appropriate response. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 
says, in the following instructions, I do not command, commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. This weekly meal, we've talked about this as elders and considered the beauty of us having the Lord's Supper every week. Is it helps us keep a short account with each other. If you didn't take the Lord's Supper last week and you're not taking it again this week, then I have to ask you, don't you miss eating with God? Don't you miss eating with God's people? Does a root of bitterness mean that much to you? Man, I'm telling you, life is miserable in that place, leaving, un, living by unforgiveness, bitterness, division. If you passed on the bread and the cup last week because of a divisive heart or a broken relationship or unconfessed, unrepentant sin, why are you passing again this week? Well, you have to pass again next week. If we don't dine together because of your sin, you need to be held accountable to work out whatever problems you've got with someone and reconcile like the family that we're supposed to be. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Lord, I pray as we are taking of Christ's body, that we are mindful of the impact um, that his body has had on this body. That we would be no people were it not for him. Lord, I pray that uh, as we consider the brokenness of his body, that we can consider that because of the brokenness of his body, that there doesn't have to be a brokenness of this body. Our division, our sin, our leaven. Lord, we recognize also that it's not something that we can muster, that we need each other, that we are each other's instruments in guarding against that and in reckoning with that if it's present. Lord, I pray that the temperature and tone and character of that in this church and among the leadership and among those, maybe a brother who's approaching another brother, that the character and tone will always be a humility and a gentleness and a personal searchability that just goes both ways. Lord, I pray that what will impact us or fuel us will be the recognition that we are readying for, your, for Christ's return. Lord, we are thankful for the broken body of Christ. And we're thankful that he's seated at your right hand right now, alive and well. In his name we pray. Amen. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.
Lord, we are so thankful for the blood that covers our sin. So thankful for this covering for past, present, and future sins. Lord, we pray that we respond appropriately by being serious about living in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. All the while knowing that we can never earn this gospel that you have, salvation that you've given us. All the while knowing that we can't add even the tiniest bit of righteousness to the finished work of the cross that is sufficient and complete. We want to respond appropriately as a member of your family adopted into your household. Lord, we're thankful for this blood that covers us. Lord, I pray for specific sin. If there is a sin of division, bitterness, anger, frustration, a critical spirit, sin of lust, greed, drunkenness, if those sins are in this body, Lord, we pray that sexual immorality, Lord, we pray that you will use each other in a loving but true way to be about the work of beautifying the bride. Lord, we want to be true for your glory. We'll leave the size up to you of this church, but we want to be true. We're thankful for the cross. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Last thing to share with you before we sing is um, this last passage. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Death is a serious thing, and our Lord's death is a serious thing, and I sense a real sobriety among you this morning. And I'm thankful for it. It's a sober message. There's some sober, sober truths that we have to engage as a people. I pray for those who may may not be here today, may be listening to it online or through podcasts or through CD for recognition of the gravity of this journey. It's not a club. It's not an organization. It's a people. And it's an accountable people. And this journey matters. Eternity's a long time. Let's sing.